Good morning. So for the first time in a while with you all, uh, I'm going to be taking a break from Acts to respect the church calendar a little bit. It is Palm Sunday, and uh, the day we traditionally think about the triumphal entry, Jesus entering into Jerusalem. So that is what we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles, could you please turn them to Luke 19? Christianity does something a little funny and maybe counterintuitive, which is if you think about the two big events on this week historically, we have Jesus entering in, and it's uh, if you picture it entering into Jerusalem, there's a lot of rejoicing and celebration, and it's very triumphant. And soon after, though, we have the crucifixion of Jesus, which is you know full of shame and humiliation. And uh, what is odd, though, about what the gospel does, what the Bible does with these stories is actually it's, it's flipped from what we might think. You might expect that the triumphal entry, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, would be the thing that gives us assurance and celebration, and that the cross, Jesus dying on the cross, would be the thing that gives us the most challenge. But actually, it's a little flipped, that the Jesus entering into Jerusalem is a bit of the challenge and the cross is where we as Christians look for assurance of God's love. So as we get into this, I, I want to peel back for us the challenge implicit in Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Let me read this passage for us. We're looking at 19, starting on verse 28. We'll read it together, and then we'll get going. Luke 19, 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray together. Father, please be with us here. We open our hearts to your word. We know when we come to you, we don't often find what we expect, but we do expect that we will meet with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So December 7th, 1963, during the Army-Navy football game, this will connect, during the Army-Navy football game, something pretty amazing happened for the first time, which is a televised audience saw an instant replay of a play. Tony Verna was the name of the director of that event. If you're thinking about television, the director is the person saying, cut to camera here, cut to camera here. And he had been troubled by when he televised sporting events that, you know, you, you follow the quarterback, drop back, camera follows the ball, there's no re receiver there, 
And the audience can't see that, oh, the receiver fell down 10 yards before. And he was thinking about how do I solve this problem? How do I show people the fullness of the play? And he realized that the only way to do it was to instantly show the play again from a different angle. That if he waited several plays later, nobody would care anymore. He had to do it right away. Uh, humorously, at that time, I, I'm not going to get into the technical technicality of it, which is code for I have no idea how this works. But <laughs> at the time, they were having to use, reuse some film to, to even attempt instant replay. And apparently, on one of the tracks of film was I Love Lucy. So there was like a a 50% chance that the first time they tried, you'd be watching the Army quarterback throw the football, and suddenly, Lucy, I'm home, would ring out. Well, he took a big risk, and at the end of the Army-Navy game, uh, Army scored a touchdown. Uh, Tony Verna, the director, tells his staff, like, now's the time. And the broadcaster, this is lost to us, we don't have it saved. The broadcaster apparently said, ladies and gentlemen, Army has not scored again. You have seen an instant replay, you know, and it's this big thing. Well, what's been humorous about that, right, is uh, if you watch any sports, instant replay is such a part of the fabric of watching sports that now we even have it in person. You go and there's a giant screen, and when you're wa you watch the game, and then everybody shifts and watches the instant replay. And it's been baked into uh, the event itself. You can now challenge plays in most sports uh, to review the play on instant replay. Now, what's funny about that is I suspect if you went back to 1963, and told that audience who had just seen the instant replay, hey, eventually you'll be able to challenge plays using this instant replay. They would have said, well, we'll never get calls wrong again. You know, it'll be totally clear for the rest of all time. If you've ever watched a sporting event, you know that's not the case. Uh, if you've ever watched a sporting event, you can literally have two people pulling for opposite teams, watching the same instant replay with the exact opposite result. You know, one of them's yelling out, it's a catch, clearly, look, there's, and the other one, he's, he dropped it, you know. And it, it has not necessarily clarified some of those big plays. We've learned a little bit about psychology through instant replay. It, is, it turns out uh, you can kind of talk yourself into anything. As the famous 70s pop star Harry Nilsson once wrote, you see what you want to see, you hear what you want to hear, you dig. A cynical, a cynical person might say this is a bit of a cop-out, right? Well, if we can all look at these things really closely, we can have the same input, and we can come away with diametrically different views of what happened, then maybe there is no truth. You can't really find truth. It's hopeless. The irony of that, however, is that that's a truth claim. There is no truth except the truth that there is no truth. That's the truth. <laughs> Which has its own problems baked in. Christianity argues a little differently. It says that we're so predisposed to see the wrong thing that we need divine aid to see the truth. This means we have to approach the scriptures and God in particular with a lot of humility. That's why we need each other. One of the things running through the Gospels is that people have such a strong conception of who they think God should be, what God's priorities should be, that they struggle to see Jesus for who he really is. We often don't recognize God because we don't really see him. We expect that when God shows up, he'll care about the exact things we care about, and he'll want the exact same things that we want. 
The message of the triumphal entry is really simple. If Jesus isn't challenging our conception of God, then maybe we aren't seeing God. Our main point simpler, simple from the triumphal entry. The king comes to us and we don't see him. So the king comes to us. And any account of this week has to start with this. Jesus comes to us. You know the story. We expressed hatred of God in our hearts. That's played out over everywhere. Every good thing that we've been given from God, we've found a way to, to do evil with it. Every good thing. Work, relationships, sexuality, all of it that has been given to us, we have found ways to invert it. We have found ways to hurt people with it. We create and invent ways of doing evil. It's kind of funny even going back to uh, any, any point in technological history when we develop something new, you know, say the light bulb or the internet, there's always this wave of this is going to be so, we're going to be so great because of this. Can you imagine what this is going to do for us? How we're going to love each other better? How we're going to do all? And, you know, reading those things is just naive looking back. But we do it time and time again. We are the ones God gives us those gifts. We find ways to do evil with them. The king comes to rest in our castle and we murder him Macbeth style. Sorry, English teacher. All the dissonance and pain of life is explained by this separation this ha we have, this rebellion we have against God. From acne to death, it's all a product of this casting off of God. But even though this is true, God, incarnate as Jesus, is the one who comes to us. He's the one who initiates. And all throughout the story, he's the one reaching out. And if you just start paying attention to the life of Jesus, you see him reaching out in situations that are just stunning and surprising. In the book of John, we find the woman at the well, this woman who is an outcast from her society, and every day she's going to the well at a certain time to avoid her community because she's not a part of that community. Her only destiny, you would say, if you had seen this woman, was in the book of the forgotten. What end of the, what's the end of the story for this woman? And Jesus doesn't just accidentally meet her. She's his priority. He finds a way to be there when she is there, and her name is now in the book of life. We read about her almost every year. Nicodemus is the Pharisee. He's this religious leader. He has a lot to lose by relating to Jesus. And so the only time he feels like he can relate to Jesus is at night. And Jesus could have said, that's ridiculous, you know. If you want to talk to me, talk to me, you know, in the day. But Jesus meets Nicodemus at night because that's where Nicodemus is willing to meet with him. I think it was some kind of accident that Jesus dies with that thief on the cross. Maybe the only place the thief could meet God was on that cross, and that's where Jesus is. Moments from death, Christ is there. In the end, Christ goes to the cross for all of us because that's the only place he can meet us all under the judgment of God. Jesus is the one who comes to us. And the good news has to start with this initiating, coming Jesus. I've used this example before, several years ago here, I think, but it haunts me, and I guess I want it to haunt you too. Uh, the history of Christianity in Japan is very large and, um, and tortured and interesting and terrible. One of the things that has been written about at length, at one period during uh, 
uh, mission work to Japan, there was this, uh, the, the authorities set up this system to evaluate whether someone was a Christian or not. It was called the Fumi. And they had this, this engraving of the face of Jesus. They hired someone to create the picture of Jesus. They thought the picture was so full of affection that no one could have created a picture that beautiful of Jesus without loving him and had the person who created it killed for his devotion to Christ. Now, they would take this fumi and they would set it up, and the, the practice was simple. They would line up people from the town and ask them to step on the face of Jesus as a sign that they had rejected him. If they could not do this, they were seen as, you know, heretical people, seen as Christians and punished for their faith. Mikado Fujimura says that he's seen, he's an artist in New York City, he said he's seen one of these Fumis and that for him, uh, the Fumi is the most accurate picture of Jesus ever made because on it his face has been rubbed off by the feet that have pressed upon it. Jesus is the one who takes the humiliation. He is the stepped on one. If the place he can meet us is at the heel of our boots, then he will meet us at the heel of our boots. That is who Jesus is. Now, at this point of the story, God's people have endured unbelievable hardship. They're being occupied by the Romans. We've now seen writ large in the Ukraine and Russian incident, uh, the conflict going on there. We've seen images of, of oppression, violent, war-driven oppression. We have a sense of what that looks like. And God's people wake up every day knowing, the Israelites wake up every day knowing the Romans are there and they shouldn't be there. And it burns deep within them. And there are stories of their rebellion. There are stories of the way they fought against the Romans that are unbelievable. In their zeal, and their drive, and even in their hatred of the Roman occupation. They are a beaten people ruled by someone else. And they know what they need. They need a deliverer. They need someone to come in and overturn this Roman occupation and into this landscape. This Jesus comes. The Jesus who is willing to meet us in humiliation. The Jesus who meets with the woman at the well, who meets with Nicodemus, who meets with the thief at the cross. This is a very different Jesus than what they wanted. And when Jesus comes into town, they've heard the rumors and they've probably known someone. One of the things about the Gospels is it literally mentions people by name because at the time it was written, many of the Gospels, within 20 to 30 years after the Gospels, after the event themselves, those names are there to say, like, hey, go ask that person. If you ever see a name that's not really explained, it's because they're saying, go, go talk to them. They, they were there. When Lazarus is resurrected, lots of people see it. It's a public event. It's a big deal. And rumor keeps spreading even more. Hey, this Jesus guy who says he's Messiah, he's doing some pretty amazing stuff, including he, he resurrected a guy from the dead. We saw it happen. I have a neighbor who saw it happen, et cetera, et cetera. And so when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, this is it. The Roman oppression is over. Our political insignificance is over. Here comes the king. Our biggest problem 
for the Israelites is the Romans, is the fact that our country isn't as great as it should be, is the fact we aren't as great as we should be, and here's the one who's going to make it right. But they just get somebody different. They get the one whose face will be rubbed away. They get the one who's the suffering servant, who knows that the true problem is not the Romans. The true problem is ourselves, is our hearts and our rebellion against a loving God. It's not the Jesus they expected. So Jesus is the one who comes to us, and frequently we do not see him. When Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem, it's already clear how strong the hostility is towards him. It's so clear that in a pretty cool moment, the disciple Thomas says, well, if he wants to go to Jerusalem, I guess we'll just go die with him. If he wants to go die, we'll go die. Thomas, by the way, my middle name is Thomas. My dad's name is Thomas. Thomas gets a bad rap because he's always doubting Thomas, yada, yada. This is a cool moment for Thomas, and I want to give him a shout out. Way to go, Thomas. All right. So Thomas says, you know what? Jesus is going to die. Let's go die with him. They expect that Jesus riding into town, he is going to die. They're aware of how intense things are right now. But as they come riding in, something very interesting and unexpected happens in verses 36 through 40. As they're riding out, it says, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And as they're riding in, you could imagine them going like, all right, here we go. We're going to go die. How long do you think? You think we'll last six hours, 12 hours? What's the over-under? And they come in, and the crowd is rejoicing. I'm like, whoa, maybe this is going to go differently than we think. In fact, it's such a big thing that the Pharisees, the people they're afraid of, are rebuked openly, and it's no big deal. The Pharisees are like, hey, chill out. This is a kind of a big disturbance. The Romans are going to freak out if they hear us cheering for this new king entering in. This could be a sign of rebellion. You know, we got to calm down, and they're like, hey, if you tell them to stop, even the rocks will shine out, and it's this big, yeah, pow, pow, you know, we got them, moment. And the disciples, despite having spent all this time with Jesus, you just got to wonder if they, that kind of vision is reignited with them too. Yeah, the whole time we've been hanging out with Jesus, he said a lot about, like, he's going to die and loving the enemies and stuff, but really, we know what he really wants, which is to take down the Romans and maybe, 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 maybe he's going to do it. If we're paying attention, though, we can see that Jesus is calling out everyone in this moment. He's calling out the religious rulers, and he's calling out the people celebrating his name. The only thing more offensive than an enemy was someone who says the game is wrong. You know? Walk in, more sports illustrations. Walk in, you have two hockey fans watching the teams, and they're arguing with each other. But if you come in and say... Hockey's dumb. You are the new enemy, right? <laughs> you, if you come in and critique the game, you become the new enemy. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's critiquing the game. First, to critique the religious rulers, he's coming in publicly. The religious rulers want to deal with Jesus in the most cloak-and-dagger way possible. They want to do this secretly. They want to do this kind of behind his back. They don't want to make a big deal about this. They want to frame it the right way. And here he comes just riding in like, hey, are you going to do this? You want to betray me? You want to kill me? You got to do it in front of everybody. This is going to happen publicly. You need to face what you're doing. 
You need to understand that you are taking a stand against God, and you need to, to write it large. So his marching into Jerusalem in this very public way is a direct challenge to the operation of the religious leaders. But there's also this bizarre, we go on this long thing about him getting this colt, this donkey, to ride in on. Why? Why are we spending so much time on this? Why is the mode of transportation such a big deal, right? Well, Jesus knows the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. It goes like this. This is in the Old Testament. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt. The donkey was what you rode if you were a, a person of peace, a merchant or a priest. You rode in on a donkey. If you're going to war, you ride in on a war horse. If you're a king, you're riding in on the big steed. It'd be easy to picture that moment of Jesus riding in on the steed and like, yeah. But Jesus comes in on this donkey. And I kind of wonder how the conversation was. Like, this is awesome. Isn't that a little weird he's on a donkey? Yeah, Zechariah, dude, this is great. Look what's going on, you know. And it's a little off from how I pictured it, but it's close enough. The donkey was the way to communicate to everyone from Jesus. I don't agree on what you think the big problem is. The problem is not Israel versus the Romans. The problem is God versus the rebellion, which is you. And here is God in the flesh riding in on a donkey to proclaim peace between God and people. As evidence of this, you know what the first thing Jesus does when he gets in, you know, during this week, one of the big things he does? He goes to the temple. It's this famous it's a sermon for another time, but famous Jesus gets angry moment where he goes into the temple and sees that uh, the finances are being abused there. They're taking advantage of people. He's flipping the tables. And you could almost hear everybody going like, yeah, yeah, I guess that's important. Thanks, thanks. But the Romans are that way. So mm. I get that maybe like build up, you know, make sure home base, I get it. Home base is in order. But now turn your attention to the enemy. Everything Jesus is doing is trying to direct their gaze. You think the problem's out there, the problem's right here. Honestly, it's almost like the people and the religious leaders are just on different parts of the same path. The people believe Jesus is going to be this great political leader and that he, you know, they're involved in that and they're very excited about it. The religious leaders believe that Jesus might be this great political leader who leaves them out. But they're on the same page. They're both seeing him incorrectly. They're both missing it. And you know what Jesus says? We have this moment soon after that Luke talks about where Jesus is looking down on Jerusalem. There's debate about, I have a theory. Some people say like to the triumphal entry, he has a camp kind of set. Jesus and his disciples are actually outside of Jerusalem. They enter in and they're entering in every day. And this triumphal entry is the first entrance. So one of these days, Jesus is, camped up. This comes, Luke puts it right after the triumphal entry. It's, he's trying to do the same thing. He's like, I know you can get carried away with this. Just stop. I want you to read this very next passage. If you have the Bible with you, look right after it on verse 41. It says, and when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. 
making no distinction between groups. He weeps over the whole thing, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Would that you had known what would lead to peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. He's prophesying about the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Get this. Jesus is mourning over the very thing that they're afraid of. It makes Jesus sad too. He's sad that the Romans are treating the Israelites this way. The people are right. There is going to be a war. They do need some kind of deliverer. And Jesus is weeping in some ways over the very same thing they're concerned about. But he makes it clear that this destruction of Jerusalem, what they will endure, will be a judgment because they cannot see past the Romans. They think that the Romans are their biggest problem. Then the Romans become their biggest problem. The very thing they fear most, God uses as judgment against them. Now, my big point here was that God comes to see us, but we don't see him. But here's the scary thing. Somehow, just not seeing him would be easier to handle. But the biblical message is harder than that. It's not a case of ignorance. It's we don't see him because we don't want him. It's not driven by ignorance. Jesus has been proclaiming the truth. He's been saying who he is. He's clearly communicating everywhere what he's going to do. He's telling his disciples all the time. He tells us, Peter, I'm going to go die on the cross, be resurrected. That's what's going to happen. And Peter tells him, rebukes him. What? That's not what Jesus is supposed to be. You're not supposed to do that. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You realize you've just stood against the kingdom of God. How much more clearly can I tell you what I am and what I am coming to do. But the message of the people in Jerusalem on that day and us in our hearts frequently is, Jesus, if you're not for my goals, I don't want anything to do with you. There's a simple application here to this whole story. As we seek to follow Christ, are we seeking to follow Christ? Are we seeking to hear and see the suffering servant, the one who accepted humiliation? I find as I go and read through the Gospels, I'm frequently, it seems to me that we tend to fall, this is just observational, we tend to fall one side or the other. We're either like really hard, like the rules are the rules, you know, justice, you know, morality, justice, that's really good, or high, high empathy. And I find that Jesus challenges both of us. Jesus is like the most empathetic person ever and ends all those empathetic conversations with go and sin no more. It's just a constant challenge. Some of us need to hear that empathy and see Jesus at the woman at the well, and some of us need to see Jesus kind of calling out the woman at the well. And he does this. He confronts us over and over, this actual Jesus who's a real person who's not just here to affirm what we think God should be like. We all have things we're tempted to kind of impose upon Jesus. I think the easiest way to check that is to ask ourselves a good, simple test. What's the thing, if we have this sentence, if this would happen, all would be well. We all have that thing we're tempted. If this would happen in my personal life, politically, culturally, if this would happen, all will be well. And I think if we can answer that question, we'll probably get the closest to where we're most likely 
to miss see God. We're most likely to say, well, surely God really wants that too, right? When we do this, when we straddle Jesus with things he didn't say he was going to do, whether it's political, cultural, personal, when we say these things, the only possible results are deep, bitter cynicism when Jesus doesn't give you what you want, or a faith that's built on a flimsy context, right? If I think Jesus is most invested in my physical health when I'm healthy, great. But my faith is built on a flimsy context. And when I'm not healthy, I'm angry. I'm bitter. God, where are you? I thought you were. We were working together on this thing. We have the same kingdom goal, right? Here's the challenge for us. Here's the challenge of the triumphal entry I want to end here. Jesus is better than our misinterpretation of him. Jesus is better. When Jesus rides in and they're going, but the Romans, but the Romans. Jesus is saying, there's something way worse than the Romans. There, there have been Romans forever. There will be versions of these kinds of people in political conflict forever. It will go on and on ad infinitum. But the thing that I am here uniquely to solve is the fact that there is a gulf between you and God. And I am here to bring peace between us. Christian theology argues that when Jesus dies, when he's resurrected, he still has the body of a man, the body of Jesus. God, the Trinity, unites himself so firmly for us, with us. It's like he's saying, our fates are intertwined. I am with you. This is not something he comes to Jesus and take, you know, puts it aside. He is permanently united with us in this way. He has come to deal with the real problems. And that is really, really good news. And I pray that we see it. Let's pray together. Father, I know it is tempting for us to be caught up in things we think are scary and dangerous and terrible. And Father, often they are scary and dangerous and terrible. Often they are powerful. Often they are evil. Often they are wicked. And even then, you tell us to cast our gaze even higher. Father, you were a humbled Lord, and it humbles us to see it. We need you, Father. We need your grace to see We have such little faith. Give us faith to see you clearly. In Jesus' name, amen.